Welcome to Marsha's Play. The time has come for you to be the change you want them to be, yeah. No more running around filled with all hypocrisy, yeah. It starts from the inside, it spreads wide, and everything will be all right. Just know that it will be all right. It will be all right. It will be all right. Join the conversation. Hashtag Marsha's Play. Oh, Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. We want to hear what you guys have to say. You can also help us build community by becoming a patron on patreon.com slash Marsha's Play. By contributing to this podcast, you help us continue our powerful work to change culture one episode at a time. So, let's get started. Hey, what's up? This is your girl, Diamond, and I am here by myself. I don't have Mia and Z with me because... Um, we didn't get to record <laughs> on Sunday because we were at the Black Trans Advocacy Conference. Every year it's the seventh annual one. Um, it's an amazing utopia of black transness where we just come together every year to love on each other, inspire each other and share our stories and space and love and joy and honor people that are doing amazing work around the community, around the country. And it's just an amazing event. So um, we just came back. We there for a week and we didn't get a chance to record because we usually record on Sunday. And so we were in Dallas. So I am here to share some of my points that I made during my keynote. I was the featured keynote speaker, me and Jonathan Thunderword. And um, I kind of wanted to share with my audience and have a little intimate talk around things that I talked about in my keynote. Some of these ideas I think will resonate with a lot of people that listen to us. But remember this space is a really black and really trans space. So it was really for them. And then I had some conversations with cisgender folks and um, other LGBT sectors. Being in this space was really, really amazing for me because every year that I go to this conference, um, I'm on the board of this conference as well. So um, I'm a part of the, I was a part of the steering committee and I've just been at this conference for the whole seven years, just doing what I think is great work around creating safe spaces for trans folks, black trans folks. And so for them to ask me to do the keynote, it was just an honor. And, um, you know, sometimes you go out and into the world and you're always being policed. You're being policed. Your blackness is being policed. Your humanity is being policed. Your womanhood is being policed um, and discredited. Um, all these things around your life, microaggressions and white supremacy and uh, colorism and all these things that, you know, you got to come up against coming to this space where none of that is policed is amazing and speaking in front of your peers. It's just an amazing experience. So I was really honored to be in the space to give a keynote to this particular audience of people that are my tribe so that's the first thing that I started off with because it just was amazing to be there this year's theme is journeying together living in greater truth and healing I thought that was an amazing thing because you know in order for us to get to wherever we are trying to go in these social movements we are not going to get there if we don't get there together we got to tell the truth and we got to heal from the traumas that we've been through um Dr. Joy DeGroy has a a book called Post Traumatic Slave Syndrome and you know it's just basically the premise of the whole book is that our our collective being as a community is suffering through post traumatic stress syndrome from slavery from years ago and the effects we see today um, in physical, in biology, is is embedded. The trauma is embedded in our DNA, and so in order for us to heal, we have to heal as a community. So we have to journey together through um, greater truth and healing. And I thought that was an amazing thing. And one of the truths that I talked about is queer and trans people have 
anything and everything to offer the world when we reach our full potential. The problem is that we're not reaching our full potential. The life expectancy of a black trans woman is 35 years old. That is tragic. Um, And I think that that's a truth that we have to understand is not just just some statistic like there are systems in place that forces my particular demographic to be at the same life expectancy as a neanderthal neanderthal when they were back killing mammoths (laughs) when the caveman was killing mammoths and surviving going out and hunting their life expectancy was 35 and that kind of so there's a reason why our life expectancy has not reached its potential. And it's the systems that are up against us. It is the social norms that are up against us. So we have to be mindful of that truth. Our track record as queer and trans people is clear and documented now. So there's no excuses for them not to be seen as valuable. We have spearheaded so many sparks of change in this country that even the cis heteronormative people benefit from the LGBT, sometimes more than us. We are always on the front line. We are always on the front line of something or some t- we are always in some type of fabric of this change happening. But we are also susceptible to too many policy changes with direct and immediate effects that allows us to die and allows us to be um, on the bottom of healthcare lists, on the bottom of a lot of the the um, the resources, we're the last people to get the resources. We are we are always forgotten, silenced, thrown to the wayside, um, and die without reaching our full potential. So, you know, um, during um, South by Southwest. Um, One of the things that um, Nikita said from Queer Walk was, you know, Audre Lorde didn't die of cancer. She died of these systems that were against her that didn't allow her to go take care of her body. She had to work through her ailments and not and wasn't allowed to go take it as a um, adjunct professor. You know, they you know, you're in but not really in into our community so we don't really have to care about you so you and your health issues you got to deal with that on your own time but you still got to work um and that is a perfect cis example um of you know how most of us marginalized people are treated in this system of society where you know our health care is put on the back burner just so we can survive and make ends meet and so these systems force us not to take care of our body, force us not to eat the right thing or can't afford to eat the right thing or can't afford the medication that we need, can't afford simple ways to survive because we're too busy trying to pay bills and too busy trying to make these hunkies rich. You know, and I think that is that's that affects our lives too. And when I talk about... Um, us being a part of the fabric of most social changes. What comes to mind is I was watching. Um, I knew about this person, but I just want to give these people a shout out just for featuring her. <laughs> um, in her whole up, in her whole uprising, they had um, Raquel Willis on their podcast. Um, and Raquel Willis, I love her. She's um, amazing. Um, I've, I met her. She came to. She was one of my models in. I am also a founder of TransFitCon, which is a conference in Atlanta that featured a bodybuilding competition um, in Atlanta for trans men. And one year when we were organizing, we did a fashion show and, and Raquel Willis was one of our um, our models. So I met her then and she was amazing and made just was just was brilliant and just just seeing her flourish and grow was amazing but she was on um inner whole uprising and one of one of the people that she mentioned was francis thomas francis thomas was a former slave 
that was raped and attacked during the Memphis riots in 1866. During these attacks, Thompson and Smith, Smith, which was her roommate, Lucy Smith, were housed together and they were targeted by white terrorists who questioned their affiliation with Union soldiers. Francis would later testify during the Congressional Committee that the men demanded that they, Thompson and Smith, make their food, and they obliged, but after which the men demanded a woman a woman to sleep with, to which Thompson denied, and the men raped both Thompson and Smith, the cis woman and the trans woman. <laughs> after Francis Thomas was arrested for being, this is years later, 10 years later, a man in the dress, man dressed in women's clothing. Conservative used the arrest of this woman as ammunition to discredit her story of being raped during the riots 10 years prior. This fueled an even larger campaign to refute white brutality against blacks in the South. The discovery of Thompson's identity was also used to discredit black women's claims of rape by white men and suggested that the entire congressional report that Thompson had testified in was only manufactured propaganda that supported the Reconstruction. So I, I, I thought that was an interesting story because Lucy Smith and Thompson were housed, they were housing together when this in incident happened as former slaves. They were free people. So just like now, these two women, trans women and cis women, were fighting a system together. They were trying, they were just getting out of slave slavery. They were free people trying to make a new life for themselves together, living together. Of course, they were paying bills together, cooking together, living life together, loving on each other. A trans woman and a cis woman. And this is 1866. <laughs> I want you to I really want you to let that resonate with you. So just like now, us living under these same oppressive systems, let's be like Lucy and Francis and work together and try to make ends meet. <laughs> there is no reason that we should be enemies, like, at all. And these tactics around them using her situation to discredit um, our stories and our experiences, that's still going on to this day in the court system, in the media. I think this story is a testament to how we have been a part of this work. We have been a part of this struggle with black cis women. We have been a part of this work. We have been part of this movement and this struggle to be seen as human. We have lost our bodies, our minds, our lives to the movement all together. We just haven't been respectable enough to be martyrs, just like Claudette Colvin. She wasn't respectable enough to be in the position that Rosa Parks was in, even though the same thing happened to her months before. You know, we don't get the statues or the biographies written about us or the documentaries made about us. I'm really tired of these caveats and qualifiers that we have to have to get respect and justice. Stefan Clark, you know, he's 22 killed by the cops in Sacramento. You know, some tweets came up that he hated black women. Right? And so the call to ignore him was made, but it made me think about those qualifiers. We are at different levels of our wokeness. You know, I heard somebody say, woke respectability politics are still respectability politics. And we are at different levels of our wokeness. And he was 22. I can't tell you that I was, I'm 37 now. I can't tell you that the mindset that I have at 37 is the same mindset that I had at 22. I probably had some problematic shit going on when I was 22. But if the cops killed me, I didn't have a chance to get to the diamond styles that you guys hear today at 37. If the cops, if the cops killed me for no reason because they thought I had a gun and I didn't. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? Like, I, 
him should he be held accountable for his opinions absolutely yes especially if he's alive but now he's dead he doesn't we don't have a chance to hold him accountable because he's dead you feel what i'm saying yes you i have a problem with the shit that he said you know the anti-blackness that he spewed out on twitter but that still doesn't mean i'm against i'm i'm for him dying no not at all you got to give people chance to grow and I don't believe they should die before they get a chance to grow, especially by no fucking police. And, you know, respectability politics doesn't save anybody. We know that. Um, so the truth goes back to um, the next truth that I talked about is there are too many damn systems that we both stand at the intersection of for us to be enemies. And this goes back to um, the Lucy Lucy Smith and Francis Thompson living together thing. We are, we, when it comes to cis women, when it comes to gay men, when it comes to um, lesbian women, when it comes to poor black people, like we are at the intersections of too many things for us to be enemies. The Me Too movement created by Tarana Burke to raise awareness of the pervasiveness of sexual abuse and assault in society. It was about the connection of victims and the power of having someone to understand you and the trauma. Understanding the power enough to help you through it and survive it and say that they see you and they understand you in the and that they are in the trenches with you when it comes to this trauma. Not outside of it. I feel like we need to sow some seeds in our similarities and grow like a new harvest of things instead of focus on the things that we are that makes us different. Which boils down to how different basically our genitalias are. I feel like that land is barren and we can't grow nothing from that. Ain't no damn fruit gonna grow from us focusing on our differences. We cannot be content with not making connections with other people in the struggle against the same systems. The same systems, as I said, that killed Audre Lorde, our brilliant queer intellectual. It's the same system that killed Tyra Hunter. The trans woman who was left to die by the EMT once they found out that she was trans. She got in a car accident. And, you know, when they cut off your clothes when you're a car, in a car accident to try to resuscitate you, they cut off her clothes and they found out she was trans and they stopped working on her and she died. Her taxpaying money pays their salary and they left her to die on the ground once they cut her clothes off. They're paid to help people and to keep people alive. And they didn't do their job because she was trans. The leading cause of death for a black woman is not a disease. It's intimate partner homicide. Black women are the least likely to date outside of their race. So we know who's killing us. And it's the same thing that's killing trans women. Black trans women. So the same thing that's killing us is killing you, boo-boo, regardless of how much you emphasize that we can't make babies <laughs> and how much you emphasize that we don't have a real pussy. But guess what? These niggas is still out here killing you and me. And I know a lot of times you think it's because, oh, we're tricking Oh, we're prostituting. Oh, we're putting ourselves in those positions. But it's the same narrative that they do for you. Oh, you got an attitude. Oh, you be fighting and hitting back. Oh, um, y'all ask for it. Y'all got a mouth on y'all. Sometimes y'all need to just shut the fuck up and then people won't hit y'all. But we know from our lived experiences that's not true. You know from your lived experiences that niggas are trash. That you don't they don't have to have a reason to abuse you. 
They don't have to have a reason to go crazy. They don't have to have a reason to allow white supremacy to stress them to the point of killing us. It don't have to be anything about us. But because we are the closest to them, we're the most likely to be harmed. That's just the truth. And we know this from our lived experiences. We know this from our mother's experiences. We know this from our grandmother's experiences. We know this from our sister's experiences. We know this from living in a community that is going through traumas every day. And we know how this affects our lives. You know, so cis women, we don't have the luxury. And we stand at too many systems at the intersections of too many systems for us to be enemies. We need to journey together in greater truth and heal whatever got us against each other, which I think is, you know, this idea of scarcity, you know, that makes you feel like, oh, is somebody else in competition? So for some people, I don't think this is for everybody. We got the religious aspect. Well, I just think y'all doing wrong. And da, 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 da. We have the... um. We got the feeling of, you know, women, we're all black women, cis women, we're already silenced. And then you want to come in and put your, you know, your horse in the race of this oppression Olympics. (laughs) When we didn't choose to be black women, you chose to be trans. That's what y'all think, but we didn't, we don't feel like we chose it, but um, we chose to live our truth and not hide it for 65 years like a white Caitlyn Jenner (laughs) we just chose to live our truth early you know I I understand the things that comes the mindsets that come but we gotta get past that man so that we can get further this goes to the gay cis folks too homophobia is a part of the dominant social order so these systems is against y'all too right and we all know it's documented now. We have per- we have people living that were that can account for it, that were there. That's saying the trans and femme folks are the ones who push the envelope, who push the envelope for social change that that gay men and lesbian women are benefiting from right now. You know, when it comes to Stonewall, we were the one who's got it popped off. You know, it's it's like mm, we. We have to recognize that we have been in this struggle together. We have to recognize the value of each other in each other's movements. I remember um, Huey P. Newton did the pro-LGBT speech. And he basically was saying, we got to gain security in ourselves and therefore have respect and feelings for all oppressed people. We must not use the racist attitude that the white races use against us and our people because they're black and poor. Many times the poorest white person is the most racist because he's afraid that he might lose something or discover something that he does not have. So you're the same kind of threat to him. This kind of psychology is in the operation is in operation When you view oppressed people and you get angry with them because of their particular kind of behavior or their particular kind of deviation from the established norm. And I want to say, you know, he had the right idea because he wasn't saying no, that we're in. And if you and if you read the whole speech, he wasn't saying that um, this is an easy process. He also was talking about how we don't have. We don't have these rules, these moral rules set up in this movement. This is rather new. We don't have these rules of what we can and cannot accept. But we do know that these people are oppressed. We know that the women's women's movement, we know the women are oppressed. We know the LGBT movement, we know they are oppressed. Why don't we come together with them? And I think he had the right idea. And I know that the black community as a whole are so often slandered as though 
they somehow are more sexist or more homophobic than other movements or other sectors of society. But we know that's not true. We know that's not true. <laughs> because we are, because through our lived experiences, we know that a lot of um, mothers and fathers are accepting of their children. They're not abandoning their children. Do they, Does that happen? Absolutely, it happens. But we know, I know a lot of people who were not abandoned by their family and they in a whole black ass family. So just to have a great leader like um, Huey P. Newton, and he wasn't perfect. We know that um, the Black Panther Party was not perfect. Nowhere near perfect. Because they were strong on their sexist shit. But it was a good alternative to the status quo. Right? And, you know, we get these... We know we're doing something right when we got the government coming, using money to come against us. You know, I'm pretty positive that if the FBI hadn't spent so much time in making the black uh, Panther Party members distrust each other with the Quintel Pro tactics, the Black Panther Party could have done even more amazing things. So these hunkies get nervous when we work together. And we see that now. We see that in the nowadays with Charlottesville, with um, Charleston, um, with all these, you know, groups that are inciting these white male terrorists, they're getting nervous. The world is becoming browner um, and they're losing their power and they're trying to do whatever they can they can to stop us from working together. And we got to recognize that as the greater truth and heal from it and get better tactics because we can't afford not to have each other as allies. The third truth is kind of, um, it's more of a like an internal community struggle. The third truth is we can't live in greater truth with ourselves without addressing the internalized transphobia that we have to dismantle. And this is for my trans folks. Our internalized transphobia is rooted in our assimilation into heteronormativity, cis-heteronormativity. Let me say this. Passability gives us the illusion of safety and privilege, but it does not give us liberation. In the same ways that some of our white passing ancestors got lost in the box of whiteness. Never reaching back, never being their whole selves, never analyzing how living up to the perfect whiteness was actually reinforcing the oppression that they were running from and that the people that left, left behind were still up against. I think we are internalizing that being trans is bad. So we are constantly chasing passability. Chasing passability makes us feel like cis-heteronormativity is the standard. And that our, that our trans body is the anomaly. I feel like my activism is for the trans girl who does not pass. The gay boy who can't hide his femininity. The lesbian who can't hide her masculinity. The ratchet, dark, fat, black girl who doesn't look respectable enough for whites, who doesn't code switch with enough ease and grace or whatever you want to call it to get her into spaces with resources. Basically, anybody who doesn't fit the perfect white, cishet, Eurocentric norm. These are the people who are most affected by not passing. So when we talk about liberation and we're, we talk about um, dismantling shit, you know, it's the people who don't pass that are affected by it, right? And I think by us focusing on it and making that, making cis-heteronormativity the standard, I think it, it, and me personally, allows me, it allowed me in my past to put myself in unhealthy situations that would harm me, you know, going to get silicone, going to the, to, um, 
going to the bathroom of a of a gay club to get a hormone shot and i don't know what she's shooting in me could be hormones could be not and it also allowed me to harm the people that are around that are around me who don't fit that standard either it allows me to d disconnect from people disconnect from my self-love and accepting my flaws because I'm so focused on the flaws that I have that I need to get surgeries to fix and so on and so on and so on. I'm so focused on the flaws that another girl has or another guy has and what I think he needs to fix if he wants to be more passable, if he wants to go to the club with me <laughs> and not get clocked. You know, all these disconnections, I think that us upholding this certain look or this certain way, this is heteronormative way of looking and living, you know, because it's not just the look that we want to go at that we're trying to pass. We're trying to have the right husband. We're trying to have the dog, the house and the white picket fence to look like we are normal. Quote unquote, normal. And um, it forces in a situation where we're disconnecting from our self-love and disconnecting from the beautiful things that are about the beautiful things about me and the beautiful things about other people outside of do you look like a real woman do you look like a real man because if you don't I don't value you even in the ball scene I think back in the day because spaces for us to celebrate ourselves was so scarce that the ball scene and how it's structured to celebrate the people who pass more than the people who don't I think we needed that back in the 70s and the 80s because it was so scarce. But in 2018, I think the the structure of the ball scene is antiquated. I think celebrating the people who pass and throwing away the people who don't. And I think that does a disservice to our community as a whole. I, I don't think that that's a cool idea in regards to where we're trying to go. Because like I said, it upholds... <laughs> It upholds the um, just the system that tells us that we're not good enough or that the rules just don't apply to us. And it's the same system that Sojourner Truth was asking when she said, ain't I a woman? You know, don't the rules apply to me? I done birthed all these children, but I'm not getting the perks that these white women are getting. Another thing that I, I want to kind of point out when it comes to internalized transphobia, the lackluster celebration of black trans men. It is crazy that I didn't find out uh, about Yancey Ford's Oscar nomination for um, Strong Island until the night of the Oscars. If that was a black trans, if that was a trans woman, black trans woman, we would have heard it. Be well, as soon as the nomination happened, we would have heard about it. If it was a Janet Mock, a Laverne, if they would have gotten nominated for an Oscar, we would have heard about it. But because this is a black trans man, we didn't hear about it. When we talk about um, the prison industrial system, Kai Peterson, a black trans man who was sexually assaulted and killed his, his assaulter, is in prison right now. And we're not talking about that. But guess who we did talk about? We talked about Cece McDonald when she got arrested for defending herself when the racists were talking crazy to her at a bar and she had to cut him and she killed him. She got a whole documentary. She got an interview with Laverne, but nobody is talking about Kai Peterson. And I think that that is internalized transphobia where we are silencing trans men. But I also think that there's a there's this layer, and I haven't thought this all the way through, but there's a this layer of massage noir when it comes to that's like it's like a residual effect of massage noir with black trans men because they they're coming from um black womanhood i think there's this conditioning and like a kind of warped sense of massage noir that affects them when it comes to the issues revolving them while at the same time having this social indifference towards their new black male body. Like I said, I haven't thought this all the way through, but there's some, I, 
I feel like there is, and I will have to research it and, and ask and see what's going on, but I feel like there is a certain level of even deeper intersectionality when it comes to the oppressions against tra- black trans men that massage noir is a part of it um being a black male is a part of it and being black and all these things that um it sets up against them but i'll talk about that at a later date that allows us to silence them even more another thing about black trans women that i think is an internal lies phobia is reinforcing the deadly culture and the belief that trans women are to blame for their own death, that we're tricking. And we talked about this earlier, the tricking and the um, prostitution. Like we put ourselves in the position to be harmed and killed, but we know the truth of our experiences. We know that if you allow us to thrive and allow us to get jobs and health care and be loved by the men who love us without shame, that we can be in a in safer positions. But because we have to thrive and because we have to survive, because we are trying to fight for our happiness and our livelihood, sometimes we have to take risk. When we need to keep a roof over our head, sometimes we gotta hit the whole straw. When we need to fill up our belly, sometimes we gotta suck a dick without a nigga knowing that we're trans just so he can give us the money. You know, sometimes we are in positions where we have to take certain risk in order to survive. And if the systems of oppression that are against us, like capitalism and all this kind of shit, if they were not against us as hard, we would have opportunities to do other things. But they're not. They're not letting up. So we're not letting up. We're going to survive. We're going to survive and use all the skills and tactics, regardless of how you feel about it, to be able to survive. Disclosure is like this battle between my safety and a guy's consent. Or even a battle between my survival as a trans woman in this world and your comfortability with a trans woman in this world. And when it comes to me choosing between my safety and you, your consent, I'm sorry, babe. I'm going to always choose my safety. I don't care about how uncomfortable you are. The way these systems are set up, I have to be able to gauge what type of person you are. Are you a crazy or are you not? Are you somebody that might be down or are you not? And sometimes I need to talk to you and ask you questions before you actually know that I'm trans, before I can get to the bottom line of that question of who you are. Are you somebody that upholds systems that oppress me? And just so happen, you're attracted to me. And because you're a man, you know, you could just be selling me this these dreams with when your only intention is to fuck me. And so add the element of me being trans. I not only have to figure out if you're a crazy, but if you are just a person who's trying to objectify me. And so sometimes I have to keep my transness a secret until I figure that out. So if, you know, you guys weren't such fuckboys and violent and deadly, and you guys didn't have this toxic masculinity, Some people will be able to be in positions to be able to be honest with you without having the fear of dying because we know that honesty is not a bulletproof vest. Look at Islan Nettles. Islan Nettles got murdered after telling that she was trans up front and she is in the grave now for being honest and up front. So still, (laughs) even with just telling the truth, just be honest, we can die. So, you know, until you stop upholding these systems that allow people to kill us. We're going to keep trying to live our truth and we're going to keep not disclosing to you motherfuckers until we feel safe. Until we feel that our life is not in danger. So we can't live in greater truth 
with ourselves without addressing the internalized transphobia that we have to dismantle. That was truth number three. So truth number four, and this is the last one. Healing is an intentional, ongoing set of actions. That means that we have to be intentional in our healing. My mother was my first love, and she was my deepest heartbreak. When she was young, all the system of oppressions that we talk about, my mother had all of them on her neck. She was never a virgin because somebody was molesting her her whole fucking life. So she didn't value this whole She didn't have the luxury of valuing her quote unquote purity and giving her virgin, her virginity away to somebody. She didn't have these things that made her, um, you know, that other people may get to value when they're in their youth. She was poor. Um, she had every system, the religion, um, she was darker, um, so she didn't make nothing made nobody made her feel beautiful because all her cousins was high yellow <laughs> and you know she was the black sheep the ugly duckling and da, 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 not made to feel beautiful at all just made to be used and objectified and so her having me was a source of her self-esteem for her from what she tells me was it me her having this high yellow blue eyed baby um she said for you to come out of me and be as beautiful as you was it was validation for me it told me that um if i can make something this beautiful then i must be beautiful as well so you can imagine the kind of love that she spilled on me it was really deep and heavy obligatory and blinding kind of and all of these things kind of led to her um it led to her drug addiction as well because her brother died uncle billy to violence by him being on drugs um she fell in love with a guy who didn't abuse her but he was always cheating on her and he was on drugs so of course like we know the statistics show that 90 percent of women who are addicted to drugs they get addicted to them through their partners and so her desperate need of self-care her desperate need of love all these things led her to being a drug addict and as her child i feel like i was affected by these romantic ideas of motherhood that we get sold through movies you know that mother a mother's love can't be flawed it's the strongest love in the world it's protective it's loving it's nurturing um and it doesn't allow a mother to be imperfect when it comes to um her children it doesn't give her room to grow and make mistakes in motherhood i i was i had (laughs) i was drinking on the juice of motherhood the romanticized version of motherhood and so her addiction made me believe the lie that, you know, my mother is not a good person. Is not as good as a person that I thought she was. That, um, you know, how could you abandon your children when you must not love us because a mother's love is supposed to be the strongest love. And, you know, if you could abandon us for drugs, our love, your love for us, this is my younger self speaking, uh, your love for us should be stronger. How can it not be stronger than that's this addiction? Because I didn't understand addiction. I didn't understand um, how addiction works, how, um, how it affects the body, how it affects the mentality, how it f- affects your whole being. I didn't understand that. I just had this romanticized view of motherhood and she was falling short of that. So it, it it made me angry. It made me um, resent my mother. I felt she owed me something. Um, I had dropped out of college to take care of my brother. Um, I was a good child. I was loyal to her. Um, I remember. I remember when she the first time that she got 
strung out my um I would you know how your mother tells you don't go to that fucking school telling them hunkies my fucking business house business is house business what goes on in this house stays in this fucking house because they'll take you they'll take you away from me if they knew certain things and so I was super loyal to my mother and I remember in the depths of her addiction when they wouldn't come home for um weeks and weeks and weeks I would have my youngest brother who was five I would make the bottles before I would go to school and I would um because I was teaching him how to count and look at the clock and tell time and that kind of stuff I would tell him hey I go to school at seven o'clock I get up at seven o'clock I gotta be there at eight um at eight o'clock I would tell at nine o'clock I would show him the time on the clock I was like when the when this little when this little hand gets here I want you to put the bike put the bottle in the microwave for um 30 seconds um, 30 seconds shake it up and spray some on your wrist to make sure it's not too hot for the baby and then put the feed the baby at nine o'clock and then at this time, when the clock get to here, and I would set him a whole schedule, and he's like five and six years old, I would set him a whole schedule because I knew my mother wouldn't come back, and the baby still had to eat, and we all still had to eat, and we all still had to take care of ourselves, but I still had to go to school so nobody would know what was going on. So I would come home, my brother would have the diapers <laughs> the diapers that wouldn't even be you know how you roll a diaper up so the boo-boo or pee-pee would be in and you throw it in the bag baby they would just be not out like boo-boo everywhere but he would just lay the diapers on top of each other because he was five and didn't know didn't know any better and i would have to i would come in the house would be smelling like boo-boo <laughs> but i would come in and put them in the bag um i would go to the stores and steal food for us now my little brother had um he, he was allergic to some of the um, food, so he couldn't use, like, Similac or um, Infamil and stuff like that. He had to use a special kind called um, Nutrimogen. And so I would have to go to the store and steal this special kind of formula for the baby. <laughs> and so this is the stuff that I'm going through to keep the secret that we are being neglected at home. And so... I was fiercely loyal. I didn't want to go with the white people. <laughs> I didn't want to go into the system and all that kind of stuff. And and so I started to resent my mother because I felt like I've been through since the time I was 11 till now. Um, shit. Till my brother graduated from college because I got custody of him when I was 21. That I've been taking care of your responsibility. And I feel like you owe me my childhood. I feel like you owe me a break from adulthood. But as I got older, I realized, hey, you're an adult. Every motherfucker got some trauma going on in their life. <laughs> Everybody got through something, even your mom. And clearly, if she's not giving you what you need so far, you're not going to get it. So you either going to love your mother unconditionally through her trauma and through her addiction, or you're going to lose your mother. And I didn't want to lose my mother. So I had to intentionally do things because my mother is going through her addiction now. But I and so sometimes she's in we're in spaces where she could harm me and re-traumatize me. And so I had to learn how to protect myself from that. So I'm not re-traumatized, but also where I'm still open to be her support system. And it's intentional, y'all. It's really intentional. I had to intentionally Say I'm going to love my mother the way she loved me prior to her um, addiction. I had to learn that throwing people away is not the answer. Cutting people off, and I wanted to. Be, I want to be a part of a family that is safe and that holds people accountable. You feel what I'm saying? But I also don't want to be a part of a family that throws people away, that doesn't give them room to grow. So those are all the truths that I wanted to share with y'all. <laughs> um, you know, your healing has to be intentional. We, ha In order for us to journey together in greater truth and in healing, 
we have to do it together and we got to work through our shit together in the most healthiest, positive, accountable way. Um, we got to be accountable for ourselves and accountable for how we love and show up for other people. And how we go to battle for other people. We have to be accountable for that. We can't. These qualifiers does not break down these does not break down white supremacy. It does not break down um, all the systems that are against us. We have to come together and we have to make sure we look past how different we all may be love, how we physically look, how we have sex, who we have sex with. Those are kind of like minor bullshit issues when we are all being affected by these systems. So this is your girl, Diamond. Me and Z and Mia will be back later on in the week to talk about how um, how wonderful BTAC was. So I hope you enjoyed this first little part one of this, this BTAC review. Have a great day. Bye. Well, that's it. Thank you for coming and getting a taste of Marsha's Plate. You can listen to us on iTunes and SoundCloud. Make sure you leave a review because we really need those five stars, y'all. And go like our Facebook page and leave some comments. We'll be posting exclusive content every Thursday, so you definitely don't want to miss out. You can also follow us on Twitter and any other social media site at Marsha's Plate. If you'd like to donate or advertise with us, hit us up at diamondstyles at gmail.com. That's diamondstylz at gmail.com. And that's it for us, y'all. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. You going to say bye, Mia? Oh, bye, (laughs) y'all. Every little thing's going to be.